Welcome to Hempire, presented by CW Hemp, a weekly installment dedicated to exploring the non-psychoactive side of the cannabis plant. Once a cornerstone of the American economy, hemp has been used in over 25,000 products, including paper, textiles, construction materials, health food, and fuel. Now, tune in and discover all there is to know about this wonder crop making a historic comeback. Hempire, presented by CW Hemp, starts now. Hey, Cannabis Radio listeners, Dr. Mitch Earlywine here. Thanks for joining us on Hempire, the show devoted to all things hemp. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology at the University of Albany and author of the book Understanding Marijuana. I also pen the High Times column, Ask Dr. Mitch. Today, I'm excited to announce we're talking to Dr. Stacy Gruber from McLean Hospital. She's at Harvard Medical School and as an associate professor there. She's director of the Cognitive and Clinical Neuroimaging Corps and part of the Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery, my favorite acronym, MIND. She's also a Tufts grad, a former jazz vocalist, and got her PhD at Tufts back in the day. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Stacy Gruber. Thanks so much for having me. So, as you can imagine, we're all dying to know what is going on with the MIND project and anything you'd care to tell us about marijuana and neuroimaging. Sure. So, the MIND program was actually started here at McLean Hospital a little over two years ago. And it was really designed to begin to understand or to better understand the effects of um, medical marijuana on measures of cognition, brain structure, and function. What we know about marijuana and the effect on the brain and using various techniques primarily come from studies of recreational users. And we have lots of those studies ongoing too. But MIND was really created to try to get a better understanding of the potential, again, impact of, of medical marijuana use. And so far, we've got a, a couple of studies launched, and the data are very exciting thus far. And I'm pleased to report that people have absolutely no trouble signing up for these studies and coming in to talk to us about it, which is a, a real blessing. Well, so I know you guys have taken special care to separate acute effects from chronic effects, and I was curious if you could let the Empire listeners know what you guys do. Sure. So in our lab, we really are, in terms of the recreational marijuana research that we do, we're really interested in understanding the more chronic effects of cannabis or, or marijuana. So we're looking primarily uh, at individuals who have a longer history of use, who are not acutely intoxicated or under the influence while we're doing the assessment. So they have to be absent just for a minimum of about 12 hours. But these are folks with pretty significant histories. They report use a minimum of four or five times a week. They have to have 1,500 minimum lifetime exposures. Their urine's positive for uh, cannabinoid metabolites. Those are the chronic heavy smoking individuals or heavy cannabis using individuals we look at. We also have a group of light users that we look at who use far less frequently, but primarily it's the acute effects that we're most interested in, not so much the um, acute sort of recently intoxicated related effects. Well, so I'm curious, how can you uh, help ensure that folks really have been abstinent for 12 hours uh, before they start the protocol? It's a great question. And the use of a plastic urine cup seems to really help our cause because, in fact, we do 
collect urine and we send it out for um, GCMS in order to understand the relationship between how much is, quote, on board and performance of a number of different tasks. And we ask people to abstain starting at about 9 or 10 p.m. the night before, depending on when their appointment is. And we actually see them in the morning whenever they come in, and we remind them that you know it's important to, to let us know and to be honest because we're going to be able to tell if they weren't abstinent. Truth, in fact, is we're not going to be able to tell right there. We have to, we have to look at labs for that. But um, it seems to really encourage people to be honest. We also, I think, have a pretty good sense of our folks um, in terms of their ability to perform these tasks and to really sustain their um, their efforts over time. These are longish study visits. They're with us between six and seven hours. So I think it's, it's um, not really been a problem for us. We've done it this way for many years, and thank goodness it seems to be working. So. Now, the data are really intriguing. Now, to get somebody who's used 1,500 times in a life, I got a feeling you may get some folks who are even bigger outliers than that. Any legendary users who've uh, registered in your memory, so to speak? Absolutely. We've had people who have used you know upwards of four and 5,000 times in their lives, and this isn't necessarily number of, of um, hits. This is really number of exposures. So in a given day, how many, how many times have you, have you used? How many days have you used? Um, at, you know, when we calculate these things, there are people who are absolutely off the charts. And thankfully, again, the lab assays tend to correlate with that. So we feel pretty comfortable with their self-report. You know, and I'm sure you come up against this too, when you do this kind of work, so much depends on your ability to get really good and truthful information from your subjects. So they have to trust you. And I think this is the the kind of thing where we really like to think of our work with our our folks as as a partnership. We want to understand what and why and how. And and for the most part, our our people are really very invested in letting us know. And and they like to educate us just as well. So it's it's a really win-win situation. And I think when they trust you, they're more likely to tell you the truth. But yes, we've we've had people in the multiple thousands and their lab results usually um, look pretty consistent with that. We have things that have to be sent out for a dilution. So when they exceed 1,500 nanograms per mil of, uh, of the metabolite, we have to send it out for a dilution. Wow. That is yeah. some serious use. Well, serious. so <clears throat> I'm curious, a lot of folks uh, on the Empire listening crew are uh, often emailing me about potential confounders or covariates. Are folks who are using cannabis this many times uh, often free of use of hard drugs or, or other drugs? Another great question. So for our studies, we are particularly stringent about it. And again, you know, bear in mind if, with all human subjects research, we do the very best we can, but we do a full structured clinical interview. And so we go through every single substance they've ever used. And even before they're in the lab, we have a, a relatively comprehensive pre-screening with regard to exposures. So the folks in our studies can't have used other substances more than, depending on the substance, uh, for things like IV heroin, it's, it's exclusionary if you've ever used it. But there, for other substances, it's no more than 10 or up to 15 times in their lives. That's not much use. I know that we're on the very low end. When I look at my colleagues' inclusion criteria, I know we're, we're overly stringent, but we're trying very hard to understand the real relationship between cannabis and some of these factors that we're so interested in. So it's important to keep a pure, as pure a sample as you might hope to get. 
that that really is intriguing. And then the other one, of course, that uh, people jump up and down about is is alcohol consumption. Do you have a way of assessing and limiting that? We do. We have, again, really strict inclusion, exclusion criteria, specifically with regard to things like binge drinking, which we know is problematic in the age range. I like to call it the fat age range, right? So we have a lot of people here in the greater Boston area. There's no shortage of folks in college who may or may not be using cannabis and who may or may not, usually may, be using alcohol. And it's really important to try to disentangle the effects from each other because they're often used together. And I have some colleagues who study sort of the concomitant use of them. We're really much more interested in in the effects of cannabis. So we try very hard to query people in multiple ways to make sure that their alcohol intake does not exceed what I would consider a fairly stringent level. Um, And again, that may be less representative of the entire population, but at least gives us some semblance of an idea of what we expect related to cannabis as opposed to, again, more of a a sort of a compound effect. You know, without random assignment, we're kind of stuck in a weird ethical quandary. Do you feel like there are personality traits that are common to folks who've used 1,500 times in their lives that might not be there for other folks? Another really great question Um, in terms of sort of hard, fast personality measures like the things like the NEO, a measure where we're actually looking at personality traits, um, we are starting to see some things now that our sample sizes are getting significantly larger. You know, by and large, I think the the stereotype is always that, you know, these folks are going to come in and the chronic, quote, heavy hitters are going to pretty much look like your very chill, very laid back people who don't necessarily do too much or have too much going on. Um, You know, they don't get upset about things. School is sort of secondary. We certainly don't see that in the majority of folks that we have, and that's encouraging. Um, In fact, you know, when we look at academic performance and IQ, they're significantly higher than average, also encouraging. But in terms of real personality traits, the one thing I will say is that we do see and have reports of greater impulsivity in folks who use cannabis relative to those who don't, and that's something to be mindful of because at least in our studies it's correlated with a measure with measures of white matter so white matter which connects one brain region to another and allows for good clean transmission of signal from neuron to neuron we do see changes in white matter in smokers versus or users versus non-users and specifically in the early onset users who are, appear to be the most affected across the board we see a relationship between lower white matter organization and higher impulsivity. So that's that's something to keep keep an eye on for sure. That is an intriguing finding. I did just want to underscore you're not seeing this uh, stereotypical amotivated slug in your in your experience, folks. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I would say you know by and large these people are recruited again from the greater Boston area. Yeah, we have some people from from other areas who come in, but it's a it's a very common thing that these folks are are in school somewhere or between the ages of 18 and 25, 26, they're doing something. And we don't really see the quote slug profile. Um, At least we haven't. And again, that gives me great hope because I think there's an awful lot that's out there that allows people to have a misperception of what, let's say, a minimum of 1,500 exposures might quote look like. And I always remind people, you know, it's the most widely used substance across illicit, currently illicit by federal standards, 
across across the globe. So these are people that you encounter in your everyday life. You just wouldn't know it. So it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, those cannabis users, they're everywhere. You got to be careful. Hey, I do have to take a pause here. As uh, my cannabis radio brother, Vivian McPeak, would say, we've got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. We'll be right back with Dr. Stacy Gruber of Harvard Medical School. Stay tuned for more Hempire. Hold on for more Hempire after you've grown to learn more about our sponsors. This is Bobby Black, host of Blazin, here to talk to you about 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast. Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical bombs, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Hemping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint the business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. We don't limit how much you smoke, and we don't limit where you listen. Cannabis Radio is now on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Time to harvest more crop-tastic content on Hempire, only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. Thanks for tuning in to Hempire. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, your host, and we're talking to Dr. Stacy Gruber of Harvard Medical School. She's in charge of some of the most intriguing cognitive neuroimaging work on marijuana to date. We were just reviewing the fact that there isn't uh, necessarily a whole lot of folks who fit the amotivational stereotype. That said, we do have some structural and functional uh, related changes that seem to be associated with 1,500 lifetime uses of cannabis. Uh, Dr. Gruber, do you mind just kind of walking through some of the findings you guys have as far as the long-term or heavy users are concerned? So when we look at this, let's say, a sample of heavy users, and again, these are people with a minimum exposure, let's say, of 1,500 1500 times having used cannabis, what we tend to see when we think about cognitive performance, so the ability to perform certain cognitive tasks that require attention 
or vigilance, the ability to suppress an overlearned response tendency in favor of something that's less automatic. Typically, individuals who use cannabis or marijuana perform less well than those who don't. But specifically, when we separate the cannabis users from those uh, into those with early onset, that is, uh, regular chronic use prior to age 16 versus those with later onset, that's when the real differences emerge. And as it turns out, earlier onset of use, at least in our studies, appears to be related to more significant difficulty with these types of tasks. In fact, many, many times the late onset smokers look much more like the control subjects than the early onset users. So that's, that's important because from a public health perspective, it really underscores the need for education with regard to the sort of the earliest of, of users, the folks who are really adolescents uh, when they begin using regularly. We see the same kind of thing when we look at the performance of tasks while undergoing functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. fMRI gives us a lovely picture of brain activation. What parts of the brain are active during the completion of, let's say, some of these same tasks? What we see is that marijuana users look different from those who don't use. But again, the differences are most striking when you separate the early and late users and then compare them to controls. The early onset folks look much more different from the controls than the late onset folks. Finally, when we think about brain structure, again, thinking about things like white matter, white matter is critical for good clean communication between brain regions. We measure brain matter, uh, white matter in lots of different ways, but we'd like to think of it in terms of how well organized it is. That's a pretty basic measure. What we see is less organization in white matter in u marijuana users versus controls, but specifically, the earlier you use marijuana, the lower the white matter organization. When we look at early versus late folks, in terms of cannabis, the early onset users are significantly lower than the healthy controls and we see that there's a correlation between lower white matter in just the early onset users and um, increased impulsivity. So that's like the perfect storm. Lower white matter because you're using cannabis and the earlier you use, the lower the white matter organization and the higher the impulsivity. So that's sort of in a nutshell the kinds of, of things that we see. The irony here is it sounds as if then the cannabis use would end up uh, leading to still more cannabis use if you start up early in life and it's going to make you uh, essentially more disinhibited or impulsive. It, it may very well. I mean, you know, we measure behavioral impulsivity in lots of different ways. And of course, as, as you appropriately point out, one of the ways we think about impulsivity is your inability to say no or to not engage in using things like marijuana. So it, it may very well be. Unfortunately, these types of studies, the ones that we're doing, are cross-sectional. We, we may have the opportunity to call a subset of these folks back in three, three to four years. We'll have to see if that, if that all pans out. But it'd be good to know if that really holds true, if in fact these folks with higher impulsivity are also the ones we're continuing to use for longer periods. So I'm concerned that some of my empire listeners are lamenting their childhood and adolescence right now. Can you give us a feel for what uh, these disinhibitory measures are like? Is this ill-advised sexual encounters and slamming the car door on your finger, or how do you how do you get at that? So you know, I think it's 
probably best describe when we think of, of these types of, of tasks, you know, what, what do they really tap in the real world? Sort of your ability to not say the wrong thing, let's say in a social situation. Ooh, I'm in an elevator and I really want to say something about that guy next to me who smells terrible, but I know I shouldn't do it. A little harder maybe to control that impulse, maybe. And, and again, across the board, this isn't the kind of thing where it's so severe a deficit people can't control themselves. So, you know, I always look at our, our folks and I always say, you know, you're doing extremely well. It's just compared to those who aren't using. And, you know, for many, many people, again, it's a question of how significant a change do you see? But, you know, when you think about these things, your ability to inhibit something that's really overwhelmingly, you know, pulling at you to, to engage in or your ability to sort of keep multiple things uh, balanced at once, you know, juggling multiple, multiple balls, so to speak. Um, those types of things can be more difficult or appear to be more difficult in the chronic early onset users, especially when it comes to things like decision-making. Um, thinking under pressure, you know, how, how well can you, can you balance something that's, um, you know, sort of a stressful situation against an important decision that you have to make. doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means compared to those maybe with later onset or who don't use it all, you might look a little bit different. Well put, Doctor. I appreciate your description. Is there something consistent with development that seems to make this uh, heavy use before age 16 such an important hallmark? Yeah, I think when we think about the way that the brain develops from the back to the front and from the bottom to the top, the very last part of the brain to become fully developed is the frontal cortex. So sort of last to come online, as I like to say, and first to go. Uh, first to go with regular aging and certainly the most sensitive during development to things like um, illness, injury, drugs, alcohol, you name it. The frontal cortex is not fully developed until we're well into our 20s, as it turns out. And it's all um, I can do to avoid interrupting you now. <laughs> um, you know, we, we get better as we get older. But the truth is, you know, there's this developmental window within which exposure to things like drugs, like alcohol, and I don't just mean those things. I also mean things like injury and illness. Almost anything can disrupt the very sensitive circuitry of the frontal cortex, which is critical for those processes that we're talking about, what we typically term executive functions, the ability, you know, really to utilize, let's say, others' feedback to change your own behavior. This is incredibly important um, in terms of a, a developmental period with regard to sensitivity. So early exposure, while the brain is still, quote, under development, uh, under construction, I like to say half-baked, ha-ha, get it? Uh, you know, when you're exposed while you're half-baked, you may have some, some longer-term effects. You may not. It, it remains to be seen how long-term these effects are. Do we really know what happens 25, 30 years later? Not yet. So it's important to keep in mind, though, and it certainly dovetails with what we know about neurobiology. If the brain is vulnerable and you expose it to anything like drugs or alcohol, we're going to perhaps see differences. The other issue I would just mention quickly is the endocannabinoid system. So we have our own system of brain chemicals and receptors, and as it turns out, cannabis acts sort of like a key in a lock. Uh, THC specifically is, is the constituent that binds to our, our receptors in our brain, the CB1 receptor, and exposure to an outside cannabinoid like THC and cannabis perhaps disrupts the normal developmental trajectory. And that's important to keep in mind. 
I, m- most of my guys say, well, if I have these chemicals and these receptors, obviously I'm supposed to be using. And you know, <laughs> I think it, it, it absolutely, I can understand the logic there. It turns out we have our own chemicals, our own endocannabinoids, things like anandamide and 2-AG. But like I said, THC sort of fits like a, like a skeleton key in the lock that is our receptor. And uh, we get an effect. So it's important to keep in mind that there is a period of vulnerability. So I never say just say no. I always say just not yet. Much, much easier message. Sounds, sounds like good advice. I'm curious uh, how you'd feel if I just put my daughters uh, in some headgear right now and take them out sometime in their early 20s. Tw- the opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. 